Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Joelle Leon Daniels. Do you go by the whole name or how do you like people to? Yeah. <laughs> I go by Joelle Leon now. Leon okay. is my middle name. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's cuter. It's easier. Yeah, it is cute. I like it. Has it has a right? beautiful ring to it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, fun fact here. So, I first heard about Joelle on the Sharon Salzberg podcast, which I was listening to over the summer. And then I started following him on Instagram. And then I was like, you know, when you stalky stalk someone a little bit, and I'm like, wait. This person like lives really close to me because I was like recognizing the things I show up at school and he is a fellow dad in my son's classroom. So this is the universe just winking uh, at, at me, at us, at all of us all the time. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to read his official intro. Joelle Leon is a Bronx born and raised performer, a proud hashtag girl dad author and storyteller who writes and tells stories for Black people. Joelle is repped by Folio Literary and is currently working on his first essay collection, What Kind of Black Are You?, to be published by Holt McMillan in spring 2024. Joelle, we are so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Happy to be here. You know, yeah. um, hopefully people can ignore. I don't normally sound this sexy, unfortunately. This <laughs> is, in. Why this not? is, you know. Hey, you got everybody. the name, you got the voice, you know, <laughs> yeah, you, know. It. you got I the coconut water. Yeah, I just get laryngitis all the time. Yeah, okay. you got a little it's extra just... bass in it today. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I like yeah, it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Well, we have so, so much that we want to ask you, but, you know, as usual, let's start at the beginning. So we know yeah. you grew up in the Bronx in a somewhat rough area, and I'm really curious, what were your early exposures to the creative fields, to art, to writing, to poetry? Who were the people that influenced you at that early, early stage? Biggie, Jay Z, and Nas. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a hip hop head first and foremost. Um, so what I normally tell people, like my favorite writers are Toni Morrison, Jay Z, Nas, Biggie, and then like we get into like the Nikki Giovannis, the Sonia Sanchez's of the world. Um, primarily black women writers and rappers <laughs> are probably yeah. my biggest source of inspiration. But you know, I grew up in the birthplace of hip hop, and yeah. I think a lot of my growing up and and childhood rearing was extracting information um from those environments there's a um jay-z used it as a diss against nas but he he says something in um in uh the takeover where he's like you witnessed it from like your window and and created your life like essentially saying he wasn't like immersed in like a lot of the street activities but yeah. he was seeing it from his window and honestly that's a lot of how i grew up like i was i, I grew up on a block that um there's just a lot of activity and you know um a loving childhood but then also, like, you know, there was some danger um, involved. Um, and I think 
you know, I had homies who were doing stuff. Um, and I think some of that would kept me sheltered was my mom. And then also I was a nerd, you know, um, I was a nerd who grew up in the hood. So I think a lot of my upbringing was fostered by my knowledge of hip hop. I think I escaped a lot of situations um, with my like capacity to rap um, and write. I think that kept me out of a lot of trouble. Um, but hip hop was the first, was the starting ground for me. It was the, the bridge, if anything, for like how. I figured out a way to um, create art, I think, with like a purpose, if that makes sense. Um, you know, like I, I grew up on, again, the Jay-Z, the Nas's, the Public Enemies, the X-Clans of the world, a lot of these hip-hop groups that that came of age during this very Afrocentric era of hip-hop, a tribe called Quest, Jungle Brothers, the whole Native Tongues um, cohort of, of of rappers, Queen Latifah, Money Love. The list can go on, but it was it was very much um, rooted in this idea of creativity and blackness uh, for me very early on. Yeah. And so <clears throat> for you yourself, starting out as sort of a young artist, rapping, writing, all the things that you do now, what age were you when you first thought, hmm, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. I'm talented. I had something, you know, how how old were you? And be honest, don't be, don't be modest. <laughs> 14, 14. Okay. It was 14. My brother, my brother, who's about eight years older than me, shout out to D. D and his friend at the time, Jay, they were like, uh, they were freestyle rapping um, in, 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 in our bedroom. And they were like playing, like they, because they can't rap. So like, they were just like, hey, hey, monkey see, monkey do. What, what are you? Like, they were just saying random stuff. And then my brother was like, yo, like spit some. Like he was joking. He was expecting me to like play. And I wasn't playing. Like I like really went in and it was like rapping. And he was like, what what is he's like when he's like how long have you been rapping like he was kind of blown away at the fact that i had secretly been honing this skill of like freestyle rap for i mean since i was about six wow. um because i would i would hear songs and i would you know you're six so like you know when the right when um the right stuff came out by um new kids on the block like there's the like that bridge part and i used to say um you're made of without clay for whatever reason, like I thought that's what I was hearing. And so like there's this idea of me creating words that didn't either A, that didn't exist or I didn't have the language for. So when I because I would forget words, I would just freestyle songs all the time. Um, and so I kind of just honed that as a skill. Um, but it was like 14. 14 was the age where A, I actually started writing raps because I hadn't been writing raps before. I would just kind of write poems, which in and of themselves are raps, whatever. But I was um it was it was around that time where I was like, oh wait a minute, there's like a, I I can actually do something with language in a way that feels cool because my brother thought it was cool, so D thought it was cool, that meant it was cool, you know. Yeah, so so you were a creative from a very very young age. We'll say six. You knew it at fourteen, right? So since the very start, and you now have this incredible creative career, but it's not like you turned 14, realized you had some talent, and then jumped right into it. I know that you had a bunch of quote-unquote day jobs before you landed in the incredible place where you are today. Would you mind telling us a little bit about them and kind of that journey to get from 14-year-old, whoa, I have some talent, to who you are today? Well, I mean, I'll try to truncate it for y'all. I um. Like the my whole first, my mom, we want to hear. <laughs> I mean, there's a it's pre-creative, pre-creative. Yeah, it's lengthy. Like my mom, you know, so I went to LaGuardia, which is on um, the performing arts high school, um, and and uh, here in New York. And 
LaGuardia played a big role, I think, in how I, I understood my own creativity. Like I went, I went to LaGuardia as a drama major. And so theater was also a, a world in which um, I inhabit still, I think, um, not as often as I used to. But um, my mom didn't want me to work. Like my mom's, my mom was like, she wanted my primary focus to be going to school, getting an education and doing well. Um, and I did that fairly well. And it wasn't until like junior year in high school, I, I got a job working um, a public access show that was connected to the Board of Education. And I was like a TV host. And that was like a small thing, but it was like, oh, this is my first time getting a check. And being on camera, which is the first time I'd ever actually done that work because we weren't really doing commercial work on the LaGuardia. The primary focus was theater and holding that as a craft. Um, but then, you know, I worked retail. I was a, I was a customer sales lead, AKA co-manager at Express Men for a couple oh, of yeah. years. I was, you know, I was a roofing technician um, for a few months in Lakeland, Florida. I worked in social services for about nine years. So I was an HIV AIDS case manager, manager for about two years. And I was a discharge planner um, that worked with um, folks who were coming home from from incarceration i did that for about seven years um before i moved into like marketing and advertising which is what i do now for like my 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 day gig um but all throughout that entire time i was still every job has essentially been an incubator or a fund for for my creative projects you know I've, I've never really been the if you don't go all in on the thing i mean i would argue i'm actually all in on the thing i've just learned how to to see the seasonality and things right like I think every every career goal or every life goal has a season sometimes. I don't think we can, um, and I think I've heard Gloria Steinem say it, it's like you can't, like you can have it all, but it's not at the same time, mm-hmm. you know? And so mm-hmm. I think part of the work is being able to recognize and understand, like there are some seasons where I was acting more than I was rapping, writing more than I was rapping, rapping more than I was performing. Like there were all these other elements, um, but like the work was always like, I need to find something that connects to my spirit first, but it also is going to pay bills. Um, and, it's, and that changed dramatically when I had children because working in a nonprofit sector with only a high school diploma is only going to get you butt so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but like that's like I've 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 worked any and every kind of job, and primarily to serve the function of creating art. At the end of the day, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I I love this evolution of your career because something that we hear a lot from our clients who we executive coach is I'm not doing exactly what I want to do now, but I'm scared of throwing it all away if I leave this exact path that I'm on. And your story just gives people such a beautiful permission to evolve and to say, hey, even if I'm not for example, creating art or in the exact creative career that I ultimately envision for myself, there's still this amazing opportunity to gather inspiration and tie what I'm doing now back to this creativity that I know rests within myself. And I think that that's such an important message for everyone out there, whether you are creative or there's something else that you just have this burning desire to do and something that we don't talk about enough. Not at all. And and I think part of my frustration sometimes with us as a community is like we put so much emphasis on the, like, that's the, one of the first things we ask people, right? Like, what do you do? Yeah. You know, and, and I've been, I've generally like to ask people what, what, what are they excited about? Mm. Um, be, because I think what you're excited about does not necessarily, tra- might not translate into your work. And if it does, then I need you to have some more hobbies. You know, <laughs> I think, you know, because at the end of the day, like 
your job doesn't have to be the thing that fulfills everything. I think, I mean, honestly, I think about that across the board, whether that be work, whether that be partnerships, friendships, like the, the thing that you're in does not have to be the sole thing that fulfills all of your life's purpose and wants and needs. Like that's just doesn't seem suitable or fair either to the job, to the person, to the environment, whatever the case might be. And so I think part of that is having a portfolio of experience, you know, like I've been able to, shift into these different roles because I'm open to the experience of life and creativity and that wherever that's going to take me, I'm fine with, you know, as long as I'm able to create the things that matter. So whether I'm working at the, like, whether I'm working at the times, whether I'm back roofing, like I'm still going to be doing the things that fulfill me outside of that nine to five or eight to eight to four, whatever that time frame is, because I'm fulfilled in other facets of my life that have as much, if not more meaning to me, you know? Yes. Yes. So what was the catalyst for you to finally say, okay, these jobs that I've been doing, they are creatively fulfilling in some way. Yes. I have other side projects that are creatively fulfilling, but it's time to jump into a more creative paying nine to five gig for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, children. <laughs> kids, That'll do it. Kids, you know, like my 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 first my first um Lila Lila is seven. And around the time before like before I found out I was having Lila, I was already I'd been in my job working with working as a discharge planner going on, it was going on seven years. And I could just tell that my my brain was I was getting bored. And like that's not a place you want to get bored, especially when you're in service of human beings. And so for me, there was like a really there was a reframe that needed to happen. And then once I found out I was having a child, I was like, okay, well, wait a minute. We, this is not going to work financially. So what am I doing right now that is going to afford me the opportunity to leverage those skills um, and maximize those skills for profit? And around that time, I had been writing essays a bit more, specifically on medium.com, because medium at the time had no paywall. And it was really the wild, wild west. And they were doing a really phenomenal job of, of sourcing writers. There were a lot of great writers, especially a lot of black writers at the time and a lot of publications that Medium was a hub for. So I saw myself writing a lot more and also building my Twitter profile because at that time I didn't even have, I think I had an Instagram, but I had like maybe a thousand followers and no knock on anyone who has a thousand or less or more or whatever. But if like, and talk about growing an audience, I knew that that was, there was people didn't care what I was saying on Instagram. I could do whatever I want. I mean, I still do whatever I want now, but people weren't caring about what I said then. Um, but Twitter was growing. And so I was like, okay, well, I know how to build a platform. Clearly I know how to build an audience. So what does that what does that look like? And I had I had never worked in advertising. I had no portfolio. I didn't go to school for it at all. Like again, high school diploma. But like I had built my Twitter platform. So I was like, okay, well, that's like social media. I manage my social media. That like are there jobs for that? And then I had a, you know, I've been doing enough reading to know that there were things called social media managers. I didn't know what they did, but I knew like, okay, well, I have a basic and I can write. Okay. That seems like a win-win. Um, and I found an agency that took a chance on me primarily because I was a really great writer who had a really big, solid Twitter platform. I think I had maybe about 11, 10K followers at the time. And that at that time, I think that was still like we're talking about 2015. So like that amount of followers then was pretty significant. And I leveraged that into like a social media manager job, which I was horrible at. But it gave me, I mean, absolutely horrible. Like, cause it's, it's like- It's, it's a rough job. Oh my social God. Social media management is rough. 
people don't get people don't give community managers enough credit because mm-hmm. you have to be a copywriter, you're a strategist. Oh. There's so much, and like I'm not, I think strategically, but yeah. the organization required and understanding metrics and data. Oh my god, get they do the job of five people. <laughs> yeah. Shout Absolutely. out to yeah. any social media managers yeah. out there. We see, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and get paid like you know, like yeah. cotton candy yep. and, and earwax. Yeah, like it's yep. ridiculous. Um, but the agency I was working at, and shout out to um, Ian Schaefer and um, Deep Focus. And, and actually, Sean Zepp. Sean Zepp was my, the, the person who hired me and who was my manager at the time. And Sean, who's now in Australia with his husband and their beautiful twins. And he's he's doing phenomenal work that is more about like parenting influencer, which is amazing. But he brought me in. I was like, I know you're a writer. And Deep Focus at the time had what they call the stretch program, which is something I've been trying to implement in any place that I'm working at as far as agencies are concerned. Um, but I started essentially as a community manager and strategy, but what they allow you to do is you can stretch into other departments mm. if if you feel compelled to. And so they allowed me to stretch into the creative department as a copywriter. And so I spent time shadowing other copywriters, you know, um, shout out to Mike Boyce, um, who's super smart, um, talented dude. But like I was wound up shadowing a lot of folks in the creative department, which allowed me to finesse my resume just enough so that when I got laid off, from Deep Focus, AKA fired, because I, again, <laughs> I was a horrible community manager. But I was able to leverage that into another job as a copywriter because I had I was able to build someone of a portfolio. But that that initial shift was all about finding a lane for my creativity that I was also going to mm-hmm. pay bills and mm-hmm. feed a child. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I <laughs> I appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of what you see, particularly on social media, is a lot of these like la-di-da, pie-in-the-sky stories. And while like, you know, I know you're a deeply spiritual person, we believe that, you know, that there is a divine hand, there's manifestation, all of that. But but sometimes it really is like, do the dollars make sense for the the life that I am living at this moment in my in, in my life? It's not like, let's just wait for the universe to come and sprinkle some fairy dust on my on my financial situation. Right? Yeah. And I, and I think to your point, Amanda, like, I, I don't think we're candid enough about the process for mm-hmm. people. It's like, you don't just end up somewhere. Like I didn't just end up at the New York times. That would be a great story to put in a book. But (laughs) but if people don't, if I don't know how you get there from A to B, especially from people from marginalized communities, like if you're a woman, if you're a brown or black woman, if you're a fat black woman, if you're a trans person, if you're a black man, like your experience is going to be different. You know, your resume is going to be different. Um, and I'm, I've been fortunate enough that a because I had been cultivating a life that existed outside of a nine to five, I had really rich experience that honestly superseded any other educational value I might have had. Like the reason I was chosen, I didn't have a portfolio when I started at Deep Focus, but I had a lot of writing. I had things that I had been doing that would that prepared me for that role and not even cognizant of it. I was just doing it because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just my MO. I do what, I do what the fuck I want, uh, you know? And like, I need a t-shirt and, that says that, <laughs> and, 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 you know, to be fair, like I'm a man. So there's some privilege, like with regards to that, like I'm very cognizant of like the privileges I have that allow me to show up in the world a certain way. And also what I've recognized, and I say this sometimes with somewhat guilt, but I'm trying to reframe that. But the more vulnerable I've gotten and become, the greater my platform has grown. Like the more I'm just open about who I am, what I do, what I want, what how I've failed, the more I've grown as an artist, the more my platform has grown and the more my audience has grown, my community rather, has grown with me. You know, but all this started with me just being honest about how I've gotten from here to here. 
you know? Well, I heard you on another podcast, tell a story, a vulnerable story about a time that you were, you experienced a microaggression from, I believe it was a white magazine editor, maybe a TV state. I can't remember exactly what the guy did, but he made a smart ass comment to you and the word luck slipped out of your mouth. And so I would like to hear you tell this story because I think people need to to hear it, right? There's a difference between humility and not owning owning your your greatness. So I'd love for you to tell tell this story. Amanda, you've been doing your homework. Oh, come on yeah, now. Bless you. Okay. <laughs> okay. So before I kick that story off, there was a old friend of mine, Mav, uh, Maverick, you know, the producer. And he had told me something years ago. I mean, like maybe we're in 2023 now. I want to say, fuck, maybe 2010. And he had texted me something like, bro, like, own your greatness. You know? And I never forgot that. And I've said it in multitude of different ways, but him saying that initially to me, I think, was a spark. Now, granted, this, the, the microaggression happened after, but I think that was a seed that was planted in me. So, long story short, I was invited to a conversation with a magazine turned record label, which I think is still doing phenomenal work. And, you know, they, the magazine and the imprint though, I was super excited about, they wanted to move to medium.com because again, like cutting out overhead, it was just a lot easier and smarter. And this is right before medium put up the paywall. They brought me in for a conversation and I didn't know that this conversation, I was, again, because I never worked in editorial. As a writer, I'd always been writing through personal narratives and in my personal experience and framing that through the lens of pop culture and, and cultural happenings. And so when they brought me in, I didn't realize I was supposed to come in with ideas. I was not prepared for that conversation. But during the conversation, there was a white editor who had, I think he he had some, he, he, he'd been in the business for a little bit. So like, I, I could tell he had some experience. And if you're a writer, of a certain caliber or whatever, what have you. Like you kind of know a New York cynical writer when you see them, they're very much like New York magazine, probably like chain smokes, <laughs> leather jacket. Exactly. Like he was that guy. Like, you know, like he looked oh, like, okay. yeah. Like, you know, he looked <laughs> like he came from the school of like Fran Lebowitz, who I love, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. But he was like, you know, I'm looking at your bio and your, you know, whatever, whatever. And he's like, and the way he asked the question was just very, it felt smug. And it was like, how did you do it? And like, he seemed perplexed. Like he didn't understand how I myself was in a position to be in the room with him having this conversation. Now I could be completely wrong, but I'm pretty intuitive and I gauge feelings pretty well. And so when he asked the question, and I think amongst the pressure of thinking of ideas, this new environment I was in with this, in this room with people who I didn't know and didn't trust to be honest, and not trust because I was distrustful, but I just didn't know them. The, the words that came out after you asked me a question was like, I luck. You know, I just for, for, I think that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. And I remember, I don't remember what I said after that. I think I pitched like a Jay-Z essay or whatever. And I remember leaving afterwards and being downstairs and saying it out loud to myself, like never again. Like never, will, never again will I make myself smaller in order to make other people feel comfortable about the work I've put in to be as dope as I am. Like, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And I was really disappointed in myself in that moment, but like, I have no fucking idea where he is, <laughs> you know? But, but He's then, not here on this podcast right now. You know, <laughs> he but, listens. But, you know, you know, and, and you know, not a diss, but it's kind of like, you know, the hip hop in me is very competitive too, yeah. so I can't help that. <laughs> but after that moment, I told myself like, ah, okay, like, nah, bro, you can't, you can't sell yourself short ever and like so i just haven't and as i've gotten older i've increasingly become 
less less preoccupied with this idea of making myself small. Like I'm big mm-hmm. and like I'm okay with that, you know. Oh, I, you know, we joke, we were, um, when we had Yasmin Cheyenne on, she said something and I was like, you remember when Oprah used to say tweet, tweet, you know what I'm talking about? Like tweet, tweet, you know, on the, on Oprah's podcast, when someone said something that was really tweetable, uh, Oprah okay. would say tweet, tweet, right? So <laughs> that like, Funny. I'm big, right? Like that's, yeah, that's huge. Well, yeah I take, I take up space and that's fine. Yeah. Yes. Know? Yeah. So you're now at a, at a point in your in your career, in your life where you know it's not luck, you know it's talent, you're taking up this space. But I'm curious, in this world where, you know, there's so much visibility of our art, of our words, of our of our posts, of other people, you know, how do you deal with competition, self-doubt, comparison, imposter syndrome? Tell us how you deal with it as someone who puts their art into the world as consistently as you do. I think it's funny. You made me think of an iced tea quote that I've been kind of sitting with. He said in an interview, uh, he's like, some people hustle to be seen and some people hustle to disappear. And it really fucked with me because I was like, okay, what am I hustling for? Mm. Like, and some of it is both, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I would love to be able to just operate in a world where I don't need Instagram. Where like, if I make an announcement, like I'm going to pull up on this corner and I'm going to have a hundred books for sale that 200 people will show up. Like that's the kind of power I want. If I'm being honest, the real power I want is if I do like, if I do a podcast, right. And like, let's say I tell people, Hey, I just did this thing with Amanda, Rebecca, go check it out. And then like, you're the number one podcast in iTunes. Like that's what I want. Cause that's a, I want to be able to feed people, you know? So like, it can't just be me winning. Like I need the people who I fuck with to be winning in the same way. Like mm-hmm. I want everything I touch to turn into gold so that when I'm touching other people's projects, it excels. Like mm-hmm. there's the TikToker, I forget his name, but he used to be a UFC fighter, black guy, super funny, incredibly humble. And he just tries people's foods. And like every time he does it, like they either sell out. It's like the lines are around the corner. It's like every time he does something, it affects the community that he's touching. And like, that's the goal for me. But I think when I think, so all that to say, like, I'm aware and and I don't, anyone who says they're not paying attention to other people is full <laughs> of shit. Like, even if it's not influencing what you're doing, we all have moments where I don't even know Beyonce looks at other people and is like, you know, like you see it, you know, she talks about it on records. Like when she talks about none of these B words ain't me, it's because she's cognizant of the fact that there are other mm-hmm. dope ass yeah. prominent women in the industry who are doing things that, you know, like she has to be aware of that. And I think, that level of competition, I, I think it can fuel and drive creativity. My job has been to try to eliminate that white noise. So sometimes, like, I don't scroll a lot, you know, um, and because scrolling will do that. Not even doom scrolling, just like you'll scroll down, you look at somebody else's relationship compared to yours, you look at their job, you look at their vacation. There's so much FOMO in that, you know, so sometimes I just have to take a break and not even just from social media, but just like I got a post and then I'm out. Like I have something to say that I feel like is important to the community. I'm going to share that because I'm processing it and then I'm dipping. And then I might just be responding to comments and that's about it. But it's it's constant work. Like there's no like past tense in healing. Like we're constantly going through this and like every stage of life is going to be different. So I just try to create space for it. Like jealousy is a normal, is a normal human response, envy is also it's about you know and like we talk about this in the mindfulness practice and buddhist tradition it's 
that this is part of the Dharma, like, but you can't avoid that, right? So our job is to practice this idea of non-attachment with all things related to, 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 to these feelings, right? That are not even ours. You know what I'm saying? Like these thoughts aren't ours, these feelings aren't ours. They're they are byproducts of this conditioning. So how are we dealing with those things? And dealing with them is just being honest about the fact that they even exist, as opposed yeah. to trying to like sweep it under the rug. It's like, no, it definitely happens to me. You know, I've seen people take my, I, I'm very aware that like what I do, other people are doing. And some of that is because other people saw me do it or they saw mm-hmm. Rob Pell Sr. Mm-hmm. do it. And I'm not, you know, I'm not attached to that. Elizabeth Gilbert talked about that in Big Magic. Yeah. I think Pharrell's talked about it recently, like the idea of idea clouds, right? Like my my ideas aren't necessarily mine. I might come up with it, but there could be someone in fucking Wichita who might have the same idea and not because they stole it from me, but because nothing is new. Like how are we creating space for this notion of if I'm going to sit on this idea, someone else is going to do it. And if I don't own the idea, then I think there's less there's less need to feel like possessive about it and just do the thing, which I think also helps eliminate some of the um, some of the jealousy that might come with seeing other people in what you consider to be your lane. It's like no one owns any of this, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, your spiritual practice is a huge part of your life. As I mentioned, I first heard about you, even though you're my neighbor, heard about you from Sharon Salzberg's podcast, who was someone... I think we both deeply admire, respect, look up to um, a Buddhist teacher that's selling her short, but she's a Buddhist teacher for those of you who don't know who Sharon is. I'm curious, how did you get into mindfulness? Do you consider yourself a practicing Buddhist? What does your practice look like? Yeah, tell us tell us about it. There's not many people that I like, brag about, you know, like some like, like Sharon is the homie. Like Sharon is mm-hmm. like, I can like, I Sharon and I were texting last week. Cause she had her book launch and it's like, you were on her show like three times, right? Yeah. Sharon. Oh like when I say Sharon is the homie, <laughs> like that's my, that's my dog, man. Yeah. Like I fuck with Sharon heavy. Um, and we met, we honestly, and Sharon and I met through interesting enough through Lynn Manuel. Oh. Cause Lynn and Lynn and I share very, very like my, one of my best friends, Arthur, um, him and Lynn are, are good friends and like, whatever. So like he, Lynn was sharing a lot of my stuff and then Sharon caught wind of that. And then she was like, I was sharing so much of your stuff. We should just be in conversation. And then we had a conversation and it was amazing. And then like, I was in, a, I've been in a couple of her books. It's like, it's one of the most, it's wild to me. Cause like, for those who don't know, if we're talking about mindfulness practitioners, like, I don't know. I don't. She's really a Jay-Z. Like, <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't. Well, you can't. Amanda, yeah. Yeah, she's a Jay-Z of Buddhism, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe Tara Brock's the, the Nas, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like, like uh, Ram Dass, Tara Brock, Sharon Salzberg for me, like yeah. if we're looking at the trifecta, the Holy Trinity of Buddhism, yeah. the mindfulness practitioners, like yeah. that's a great way of putting that, man. But like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, like, but anyway, mindfulness for me started I wish I could think of a of a point per se, but I remember reading this book by Yana Van Zandt that was geared and catered toward Black men. And it was kind of like a message for the Black men, essentially. Um, but she was using a lot of language that was very spiritual mm-hmm. um, and very spirited. And she was using words like surrender. And some of it is dated. A lot of the language is very much steeped in patriarchy, I think. But like we're talking about a book that came out in the mid-90s, like I think right around the, Black, the, the Million Men March or whatever. But... The work was so profound to me. And I think that led me toward like, I don't know, I was a seeking more. I was um I was struggling in my in my then relationship at the time um with my partner. And so 
you know, I, I don't know how I ended up um, with Eckhart Tolle's work, um, but it started there. And I remember there was a lot more conversations happening. Oprah had shared Seat of the Soul and like Jay-Z mm-hmm. was talking about it. So Jay-Z was talking about, I, like, I got to read this. And so <laughs> after that, I was just, I was hungry, you know? And so I just kind of kept digging more and more. Then uh, there was this podcast. Uh, I remember calling the podcast, honestly, Dharma Seed. Dot org mm-hmm. And I don't even yeah. know how I found Dharma Seed, but it just gave me so much. It gave me such a wealth of knowledge and information, you know? Um, and so just following a lot of the writers there and practitioners, um, Sylvia Borstein, like there were so many who were like really speaking the language that it just felt connected to me and it felt connected in a way that had nothing to do with religion at all. But it was very much about how do we center ourselves? And like that to me was something that felt tangible you know, and, and relatable, especially for like what I was going through. I was looking for something and it gave me that. And we're talking about 2000, that was probably 2010. And, you know, I would never call myself a Buddhist practitioner because I think there's so many folks who have, who have really consistently been doing the work, going on retreats, studying, um, you know, I think what I've been trying to do more than anything else, Todd Brock has spoken about, this is like taking the practice off the mat. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of what my living experience has been. It's not about what's happening in my meditation, but what's happening, like how am I bringing that practice of meditation and like being at one with whatever is happening in the world, in the world, because <laughs> that's where it actually matters, you know, because we're on the mat, everything else. I mean, granted, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but we can tune out everything. But like when you're when you're in the living room with your parents or your partner or your children, right? Or your colleagues, that's when shit gets real. So like, how are we doing the work in that way? You know, but mindfulness and Buddhism have absolutely given me the groundwork for that. Yeah. And how, how has mindfulness influenced how you approach your day-to-day life and or your career as you take it, as you said, off the mat and into the real world? I think um, it's just allowed me to be more present, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, I try to be I try to be as in the moment as possible. So even like for this conversation, like I'll read, I'll have a general idea of like the questions that are going to be asked, but like it, like it doesn't matter to me, but like, A, I'm an open book. So it's like, for me, it's like, and I'm trusting the source. So if I say yes to a thing, I'm trusting that what I'm saying yes to is aligned with who I am as a human. So I'm not really worried about what's going to happen in the process of it. Because if I'm showing up as my true honest self, like when people might ask me, like, if you say anything, if you say anything that we need to cut, I'm like, I'm not going to <laughs> say anything that we need to cut. Because I, I, I say anything, anything I need to say, I say with my whole chest. So yeah. I'm not really, I'm not really worried about how it sounds or like, you know, because like I'm present, yeah. you know, present as I can be. So, you know, like my, my voice isn't perfect. You know, uh, Lauren Hill talks about it in uh, the Unplugged CD because actually I'm thinking about this now. Like she, right? I mean, like she, her throat yeah. was sore, and she's kept talking about like not having the most perfect voice and but showing up anyway. And I think that's that to me is what mindfulness is about. Like if I'm on a call with a client and I'm like, "Yo, I sound a little hoarse," or my kids are gonna be running up and down this hallway while I'm presenting the work. Like that's the reality of it. I don't, I'm not really shy about that. And I think what I hope is that that allows and affords people the opportunity to do the same for themselves in their lives and their existence. But mindfulness for me is like an every, like, what am I, who am I and what am I doing in this moment? And, and does that align with who I want to be and who I say I am 
and mindfulness is is that process for me. You know, like every moment matters. So I I, it, I bring that element into all environments I show up in. Yeah. Mindfulness allows you to be more present. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. So you wear a lot of hats. We've only touched on a few of them in this conversation. Mindfulness practitioner, creative, dad, poet, writer, soon to be published author. So we're, we're not going to ask about how you balance it all, but would love to know how you make it work. And if you have any mantras or tips for folks out there looking to live as rich of a life as you seem to have created for yourself. I think that's a really great question. And it's, I'm glad you asked me that because I've been saying this a lot more often and also thank you Rebecca for like not saying balance. I think balance is a dirty word. Uh, And what I've been trying to reframe, not just for myself, but for others and and, in the community is I'm looking for harmony over balance. When I think of balance, I think of, um, I think of a scale, right? Like 20, 80, 50, 50, um, 60, 40, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like it's it's very like data driven and, it, and it's a metric. And harmony is not something you can really measure with the data. It's very much an energy. And I think things can feel imbalanced, right? But still feel harmonious. Like I might be giving 80% to work and 20% to my relationship at that time, but I might still feel harmonious because my partner understands where I am as far as capacity is concerned. And there's an understanding of like whatever whatever space we're holding in that moment and whatever season we're in and being dedicated to that process. So there's no judgment in that. I think when we're imbalanced, right, it's like we're overexerting ourselves in different ways or something is being left behind when in reality, we're never 100% in anything, you know, like, and so harmony for me is the is the way in because harmony allows us to not feel like there have to, has to be strict guardrails for how much energy we're devoting to a thing. It's about how do I feel doing these things, and so that's been the big I think driver for me. Like, does it, do I feel do I feel at peace, and is there harmony here? Balance to me is like nothing is ever balanced, you know, like. So I can't worry myself about that because then I'll just be driving myself up a wall trying to find balance in a world that doesn't allow balance to exist, especially in a capitalistic <laughs> world where like, there's no such thing as balance. Balance is not afforded to you. And, um, and that's the structure of it. But like harmony, harmony is something I can find every day, mm, yeah. you know? And so for me, that's it's been trying to tap into the things that feel most harmonious, that make me feel most alive. And I get it. We all don't have the privilege to say yes to all the things. We can say yes to some things. You know what I'm saying? I can say yes to like a 15-minute walk outside. I can say yes to looking for other jobs while I'm still working this job that is like fucking driving me, like driving me wild. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, we can, we have choices that allow us to find some level of harmony and freedom so we don't feel boxed in and bogged down by the world that we live in, you know, but harmony is the way that we find that, at least for me. You said harmony. And I think everyone, Amanda's in my shoulders dropped. <laughs> <both> big exhale. <laughs> because balance is, you, you said, it, you said it would, balance would drive you up the wall. Balance is this kind of stressful thing where it's like, yeah. you gotta find balance. And it's, it, it, it's very um, black or white, right? Like yes or no. It's like the and, weight on the scale, you know, yeah, it's like, oh, oh, who likes scales? And 
harmony just seems to allow for the ebbs and flows of life and of interests and things coming and going, but the coming and going not being detrimental to anything, to it being a welcome coming and going. And yeah, such a beautiful and, word. And I think too, like, and, and this is, I think, for the mothers as well. Like, I think there's this notion of balance comes a lot, like, especially when we talk about work-life balance, and, and so much of that is patriarchal by, by definition. Um, because again, we haven't created a society that is like, how are you having kids in school while working at the same time? Like there's no affordable daycare options. There's no balance here. And I think just do what you want. You know, I think there's a lot of mom guilt surrounding some of that. Like I'm not showing up enough A, B, C, and D. And it's like, the kids are fucking all right, man. Like if you're doing, if you're doing the work of showing up as a full person for yourself, you're creating other spaces and opportunities for other people to feel loved, seen, valued, and heard. Um, and it's that old adage of like pouring from an empty cup. But that is about balance. That em the empty cup conversation is about balance. And harmony is like, it doesn't matter. Like harmony is, if I'm at 20, I'm not giving you my other 80. I need to replenish at least up to 75. And then we can have a conversation about what I can offer. It's really yeah. about, it's a conversation about capacity. You know, it's, yeah. it's about har harmony, peace, and capacity. What yeah. do I have the capacity for and how do I show up? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if that was an intentional shout out to the name of our business, Full Plate, Full Cup, because that's that's what we're all about, right? Like, we don't we don't want you to find balance. We know your plate's full, right? If you're doing things in life, if you if you are living big, having a career, having the family, doing the things you want, your plate is full. So it's how do you keep your cup full while your plate's full? It's not balance. And I, it, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone else say harmony in that context. You need to like make that a book, make that something, but protect it because that is beautiful and it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I know there's a word cloud floating above us, but, but I want to give you credit for that one. <laughs> I've been trying, I've been saying it more often and yeah. like, you know, like if somebody takes it, run with it. Like, you know, it, it's, there's, there's, you know, there's no IP on, 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 on spiritual expense. No diss you know track. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I'll keep that in the vault, Amanda. I'll keep that in the vault. Like, I just want people to grow and I want us to like expand our ideas of like who we think we are and who we get to be. And to your point of like full plate. We get to say no to things. And I think we have a habit of trying to say yes in order to please other people. And not everyone is going to be happy with us saying yes to ourselves, right? But my job is not to please everybody. You know, my job is to take care of my family, take care of my community. And that means for me taking care of myself first and foremost, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we were so excited when you posted on Instagram that you got a book deal. We mentioned it briefly in your bio, but I'd love to hear more about uh, you know, I, I'm sure with someone like you, there's so many topics, so many things that you're passionate about. How did you decide what to go with for this? I know you've had some other stuff published before, but I, I just love to hear about the book, when it's coming out, what we can expect, all that kind of stuff. Thank you. Um, so what kind of Black are you? Um, will be published um, spring, May, specifically, 2024. Um, and it's part of what I've been saying. Is it's part memoir, part um, pop culture critique. I think um, for me, I, you know, I had a collection of essays that I've been working through that were really looking at the world through like the cis, the cishet black male experience growing up in America. And I, I felt like there wasn't a lot of conversation coming from that perspective, if I'm being honest with you. Um, and really in the ways of like personal narrative, 
and like really exploring the depths of my own humanity and my existence and really not being afraid to touch on topics that I think, I don't want to say are taboo, but like can be uncomfortable, you know? So I talk about sexual trauma, I talk about white women, I talk about my belly, I talk about, I talk about, I mean, in this more like generic ideas around hip hop, but death and mortality. There's a lot of things that I'm talking through, through the lens of my experience, first and foremost, and hopes that, you know, that there's some level of connectivity through the lens of that connection, you know? And so for me, I just wanted to, I, I wanted to create um, an, an, an avenue for others to feel like there's a voice here. And that was important for me. That was important for me. That was big for me. But yeah, these essays, like been essays that I've kind of been writing since I want to say 20, like 2000, 2014, a lot of them have revamped. Um, I've expanded a lot of the language here. So these essays all feel new and I'm excited. I'm excited for the work. I'm excited to put this work out into the world. Well, we're, we're excited for you and we cannot wait to read it. We know it's coming out May, 2024. Do you know your pre-order date yet? So we can, you know, let's just put it out there if you know. No, not yet. Not yet. Whereas <laughs> we're still, we're still, we're still working through, <laughs> we're still working through like revisions, like, yeah. We're we're hot we're hot and heavy right now. Um, shout out to Rita Powers, my phenomenal editor, who I, I think is like running through the work. Um, hopefully she won't lose me too bad. Um, and we're working through like marketing strategy, but there will be there will be a pre order, there will be a tour. So well, yeah, there's we'll like, be pushing there it things out. in the works. Yeah, we have some friends yeah. who put out books uh, recently, so I feel like we've uh, lived vicariously through the book launch process. So we're like, "Oh, you have a book? Okay, we're we're posting. We're, we're like, when should we promote the pre order? We're writing you a review on Amazon. <laughs> we're gonna yeah. order it from a small bookseller, so it counts to the yes. algorithm. All of it." So. <laughs> I pre I pre I appreciate y'all. I'm excited. I think you know. I, I, I'm hoping to make some waves. I think I will. Um, yes. But yeah, I'm excited. Well, congratulations. This is, it's huge for you. And I'm sure exciting to look back on essays that you wrote in 2014 and kind of revamp them and almost revisit how far you've come in your own personal evolution. So this book will be a gift to the world for sure. So we have two final questions. They are rapid fire questions. We ask them to every guest. So what is one tip for working smart? Rapid fire. This is a tip for working smart. Um, take your time. Beautiful. And what is one tip for working happy? Really good questions. Love yourself. That's the first thing that came to mind. Love like yourself. I think if you, if, yeah, because like if, if, if you love yourself, you're not going to say yes to shit that isn't aligned. There it is. You know, even if it's not something you want, you don't want to do, it's, it can still feel aligned. You feel me? Like it won't be a thing that's going to feel like it's devaluing or decentering you in the process. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, where uh, where can our listeners find you? Where where are you uh, creating these days? Social media, real life, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, social media. You know, I am Joel Leon on IG for all things affirmations. Um, and it's gonna be like this. You know, working on my website. There's gonna be some bi-monthly writing community stuff that I'm gonna be doing. So, folks should be on the lookout for that shortly. You'll have an invite, Amanda. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, then, but like, you know, find me on IG and like, that's what, be, that'll be where all updates live until my website is done. Shout out to Bowley, my um, phenomenal friend and designer person who's helping bring it to life. 
Amazing. Yeah. If you don't already follow, you're in for a treat. So just uh, go go ahead and go and click the button. You, you won't regret it. Um, we are so, so grateful that you gave us your time and your wisdom today. There were so many moments that I just can't wait for our community to hear. And yeah, and I'll, I'll see you at the playground, man. <laughs> You'll see me at the playground, man. I will absolutely be there. You know, All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate, Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate, Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Plate, Full Cup. That's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L-L-C-U-P or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com www.fullplatefullcup.com